Okay, we're going to read from Acts 6, <clears throat> 8 to 15. <clears throat> and then we're going to go into chapter 7. And we're going to read from verse 54 through to 8, 3. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was of that of an angel. And then going over to 754. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. Basically, the accusation's been made, the high priest is being involved, and he's asked Stephen whether or not these things that are said, are they so? And he gives a long, impassioned response to that, to answer that question. It says then, now when they heard of these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at, together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses, or the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we're still on our journey in the Acts of the Apostles and looking basically at how this early fledgling body, community of believers, um, came together, how they operated. In fact, what the Acts of the Apostles seems to tell us is, is how there is an interaction between this new community, the Holy Spirit, and the world itself. 
And the other thing that we can deduce just from these first and early chapters in the Acts was that whatever was happening, it wasn't just about community, but God was doing something with great power. He was doing things with great power, healing people and setting people free. And he was doing that through the apostles. He'd once done it himself before his ascension to heaven. He was the one who walked and laid hands on the sick. You only read a few times in the scriptures that the disciples were doing that. But Jesus, you read again and again, was encountering people and he was meeting their them at their place of need but taking them beyond their place of need into something new and so this power is there where does that all come from is it just purely because the holy spirit's been outpoured on the day of pentecost and they've spoken with other tongues is that really where all the power came from not so long ago i um i had the privilege of well, during um, COVID, actually, I had the privilege of listening to a man's testimony from uh, the East. That's, a, that's as close as I'll get to him. He was a pastor, and he, was, um, he became a Christian, and I listened to this man's testimony, and it had such a profound impact on my life suffering so much one sunday morning or one one it was christmas day morning uh, in iraq it was um, the gentleman's no longer working in iraq um but he um he is an iraqi and he or an iranian sorry in iran he's an iranian uh, they purged the church Basically, the police went out and raided something like a hundred different homes and arrested a hundred of pastors. Very small groups of people meeting in houses. He was imprisoned, and for 360, I can't remember, it was nearly a year, it was just under a year, 360 days he was held in a room with no windows. Not one. And he would be taken down with a hood over his head. He would be interrogated and then brought back to the room and just locked in and left in there. They turned the light on, they turned the light off. He slept when they said, and he got up when they said. Quite harsh in one sense, but he just had taken on board so much of God's word in his early Christian walk that he fed himself from what he had remembered from the word of God. Anyway, about 360 days in, they came in and they said, we're going to release you from here now and we're going to put you in prison. And he, he made this throwaway, smiley, jokey remark. He said, I never thought the day would come when I would be absolutely elated that I was being sent to prison. But he said, compared to the little room that he had been in for all that time and not seeing light outside in any shape or form, he said that it was like getting his whole freedom. And so they put him in jail. And in jail, of course, he starts to meet other prisoners. 
And the very thing that they were trying to stamp out actually became an epidemic within the prison because he started at every opportunity about sharing Jesus with the people he was with. And people were getting saved and he would disciple them inside, you know. And um, it was quite an amazing thing. But he, he basically went on to say that the church in Iran seemed to have been all but stamped out in its entirety. And yet he declared at that moment in time that there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of believers in Iran. People who were meeting, they, they, over a 10-year period, from one small home church, they planted 900 home churches in 10 years. We can't even plant one home group in however many years, right? We've got two home groups, all right? I've been here three months. If I was working on their basis, we would have started maybe, I don't know, 15 or so, 20 or so by now. But the reality is that God does something through suffering. One of the things that we get introduced to in this passage is that not everything works out like we want it to. That's the truth. Not everything will always work out the way we want it to. You've got this situation where you've got a man called Stephen who is full of grace, full of the Holy Spirit. He is able, <clears throat> with the wisdom and uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, to hold his own with very learned people with regard to debating whether or not the temple was, you know, uh, important to know God whether it was important, the law, and, you know, they, they were getting upset because basically their traditions were being challenged. The thing that they relied on the most and put their faith in the most was being challenged. To the Jew, the temple is an amazingly important place. So if you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel and you visit what they call the Wailing Wall, there are hundreds and hundreds of Jewish men uh, on one side and women separate on another going to the wall and writing down prayers and pushing them into the wall and rocking backwards and forwards as they pray. The temple is such an iconic place for them it was the place which basically was the symbol of the presence of God so it was an immensely important place and yet what this new group seemed to be saying wasn't that actually I think they misinterpreted what they were saying they they they, they implied that they were saying that the temple wasn't an important place I don't think that's what they were saying they were saying, however, the temple doesn't stop you coming to God and actually won't deal with the issues that you need to deal with. Because the sacrifices that go on and everything else are not enough. Are not enough to cleanse you from sin. And so we have, on the one hand, 
They're getting upset because the place that they considered of such importance, they are claiming Jesus' words. You remember, he talked about the temple collapsing and he would build it again in three days. And he was talking about himself. He was talking about himself. But it was like to them that you'd given these religious people a slap in the face. And then they were accused, Stephen was accused of basically dissing Moses and the law again. Something that was so important to them and yet they knew if they were honest with themselves, they knew they could not keep the law. They already knew that. They'd had a few hundred years or so of being God's people, the law having been given, and them attempting to live out the law by using, um, interpreting the law, and writing down those interpretations so that they wouldn't break the law. I can't remember how many there are, 613, something is around there, don't quote me. You know, if you want to know, I'll look it up and let you know. But they interpreted all these rules and regulations as they saw it, and they broke it down into the, the, the absolute smallness of everything. That's why Jesus got mad at them, because they were so accurate about tithing their mint and their dill and their cumin, and yet they... And other issues where they should have been overflowing, they just weren't. And so what we have is we have Stephen proclaiming Christ. This guy who was a table, a waiter on tables, who became a preacher, who began to declare the gospel, we have him coming under accusation from those outside. Do you want to know that's always been a part of church life? Do you know that? Always. We get angry about it sometimes, don't we? We get upset about it. I do, sometimes. When I feel I'm wrongly accused about something, you said this and you said that and you said the other, actually that isn't what I meant. Why don't you just come to me and to ask me what did I mean by that rather than come with an accusatory finger telling me that who do you think you flipping are? You know, you bre- you're breaking it all. You're not, that's not what I believe, you know. Have a conversation. You know, God is big enough to look after himself. Have you worked that out yet? God does not need our assistance to protect himself. He can do it for himself. I'm not saying that doctrine and all those things are not important. But what I am saying is we should never come to a place where we are arguing amongst ourselves because most of the things we argue about in truth are mute points. And not one of us is perfect. Not one of us here has the perfect theology. You might be sad to know that. But your theology somewhere will be wonky, I'll guarantee it. So is mine. That's why you should check me out. That's why I'm thankful for people like Steve who brings his Bible and he reads it and he looks at it and he'll come to me afterwards and he'll say, you said this in your sermon, can we have a chat about that? That's fine, I love that. You know, Keeps me here some weeks till 2, 2.30 in the afternoon. But I think that's great, I really enjoy it. 
Nevertheless, here is a man who is sharing the gospel and comes under attack. Do you know, whenever we share the gospel, I am going to tell you now, you will find in some way that you will come under attack. Why? Because the enemy does not want the gospel getting out. He doesn't want it getting out. And so you will come under attack. So they make up these things. You know, our lives don't happen in a vacuum. They don't. We live in a real world. We live with people with different ideas and different opinions to ours. But we don't live in a relative society. We would like, we're told that everything's relative. What's truth to you is your truth. What truth to me is my truth. I'm sorry, but I don't see that somehow, especially when those truths don't align in any way, shape, or form. I can't see it. I just can't see it. You know, we don't live our lives in a vacuum. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it But like I said last week, we need to do that with dignity and respect and the willingness to listen to the people we share. Now, Stephen listened, but Stephen spoke truth. Jesus listened, but he spoke truth. There was no compromise on things just because it's going to upset a load of people. We sang songs this morning, I will serve no foreign God. And I won't have any other treasure. But it strikes me so often in this modern age, and I'm not, I don't consider myself, in my head, I'm still in my teens. In my body, I'm in my 60s, but in my head, I'm in my teens, all right? And the reality is that, you know, I don't like to be disliked, but I don't either believe that. We can have so many truths all lying around. All roads lead to God. No, they don't. They might lead to someone who calls themselves a God and to some who don't call themselves gods at all. All right? And yet, they're prayed to, they're asked, their sacrifices given to, offerings are offered to. The reality is, not all roads lead to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one gateway into the fold, and that is through Jesus. That is through coming and bowing the knee to Jesus. And Stephen was telling them this. It's not the keeping of your law. It's not. It's important we try don't get me wrong, that the law, it doesn't mean the law's bad. Paul says that the law isn't bad, the law's good. It made me aware that I was a sinner. It, it made me aware I was needing help. But the reality is, the law is good and it is there. And we should try and be obedient to it because we know that obedience to Christ is the way to fruitfulness. And to please him and to please the Father. We know that. But let's be honest and real. Who here doesn't ever sin? Hey, I'm the pastor. And I will tell you, I do sin. I'm sorry to tell you that, but it's true. 
I might not always do what the woman did, the new education minister, give the crowd outside a salute, you know, rather stupidly. But I want to tell you, that doesn't mean that maybe sometimes that salute isn't inside me, if you know what I mean. You heard the story about the child who was in the back of a car and it was standing up, bouncing around the back. We got pulled in by the police for this once. Because um, I was speeding as well. That's another thing. I was doing 100 miles an hour on the motorway and they pulled me over and the bless him, he let me off. He said, I can see you've got a child bouncing around the back. But he made me feel about that big when he said, I've been to many accidents where I've picked up children like that off the roadside. But the child bouncing around the back of a car and the father says, sit down. And the child just continues bouncing around, bouncing. Sit down. Bounce around, bounce around. If you don't sit down, there's going to be trouble. The child sits down. The father says to the child... Thank you for sitting down. The child says, it's all right, I'm standing up inside. We can be like that. And that's as sinful as actually doing it. We know that. Jesus says, the man who lusts after a woman has committed adultery in his heart. So we know it isn't just outward action that makes us sinners. But so can our thought life, so can other things in our, in our being. We might keep those things in check, but that issue is still there that needs to be dealt with. So it's not the temple and it's not the law in its entirety. It is purely by the grace of God. He goes into this whole impassioned speech and he talks about Abraham. Abraham knew God and he didn't have the temple. Neither did Joseph. Neither did Moses. They didn't have the temple. They had a tabernacle eventually. Then there's the verse of scripture. I know that, uh, you know, I can't remember where it is. It's Old Testament verse, but it's, where, where is it? Which prophet is it that says that God wasn't looking for a house that was built with human hands? One of the prophets made a, a statement to that effect. And again, it's repeated into the, in the New Testament that he, didn't, he, he wasn't looking for you know, something made of human hands. Who, who can make a house to dwell in for me? You know? Earth is my footstool, heaven is my throne. You know? It's Isaiah, thanks. This man's worth having. He's my portable concordance. <clears throat> um, it's a shame I haven't got an earpiece. He could just whisper to me then, couldn't he? Um, so... But the reality is that that, they didn't have those things and yet they knew God. So knowing God is not dependent on the temple. The temple might be something that focuses thought, but it isn't dependent. The law is there. It leads us to Christ. But if it's about us living sinless, never to sin again, then we're all shot, I reckon. We're all shot and stuffed. That's why the death of Jesus is so powerful. But you see, Stephen challenged their traditions. And do you wanna, I want to tell you something now. 
When you challenge somebody's tradition and their thought process, boy, you can uncover a right devil and demon, right? Because people get so, so, so upset. Martin Luther did it. Justification by faith. A Catholic monk who came to a new revelation about salvation. And he gets taken before the Pope. And he gets, are you going to recant? I stand, here I stand, I can do no other. In other words, he was saying, I can't recant it because I know what it says. We see things happen. And God uses individuals to make those things happen. Here, Stephen isn't just someone who was sharing the gospel. He wasn't just challenging the traditions of his fathers and not saying that they were wrong, but saying you've put too much emphasis on it. Actually, you've rejected everybody who's ever come and told you about the righteous one who's coming, who's going to free us from all this. You've, you killed them, and now you've killed the righteous one himself. And it says they became enraged, and they gnashed their teeth. Have you, I tell you, to gnash your teeth, have you tried to do that? Grind your teeth? For them to hear the grinding of teeth, boy, they must have been gnashing some, mustn't they? I couldn't even do it now. You know, it's probably because I've got fillings. But, um, but the reality is, you know, they gnashed their teeth. In fact, the word enraged means this. I wrote it down because I was quite interested. I wanted to see what it actually meant. What does enraged mean? Let me see if I can never find it on this. I'll have to get it. And much better, you know, with paper. I think I might try that next time. Um, <clears throat> no, I can't find the jolly thing. But enraged means emotionally violent. I remember that phrase. Emotionally violent, which it did. It overspilled. They dragged him out. They took him out of the city to outside the city wall and they started picking up rocks and they started chucking rocks at this guy. Thud, thud as they hit him. The first martyr. Now to us... We would say, what a bad end for a guy who was so full of the Holy Spirit. What a bad end. But do you know, it meant that the world got the gospel. Stephen's death meant the world got the gospel. Stephen's stand against what he saw as missing the point and the result of that ended up with there being a great persecution on the church. They were scattered everywhere. And the gospel broke free of Jerusalem where it had been held in up until this moment. And it went out from there and it began to affect not just Jerusalem but to Judea, Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so even though... There was suffering here, and we don't know how to handle that as Christians. There, there'll be people here this morning who, if you're having a bad time and suffering, you, 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 you've, you've bought into that that shouldn't happen because you're a Christian. Well, it does happen whether you're a Christian or not. We still get ill. We still 
struggle with not enough money. Some people might even be without food and all the rest of it. But suffering, through suffering, something happens and the power of God is released. Going back to the man I told you about from Iran, he, uh, I listened to his testimony. I got involved with, uh, uh, to get hold of him. I, I heard his testimony through Elim. It was a private minister's thing. And then I went from there and I went to a, a, a somewhere called Elam, not Elim, Elam Ministries, who minister into Iran. And I watched some of their stuff. And I want to tell you some of their videos that are out there. And there was this one guy there who said that he was praying for the church in the United Kingdom, that they would experience persecution. And I'm, th- I'm sat there thinking, oh, did I hear him right? Surely not. You're, surely you're praying for a mighty revival. And you say he, and I had to rewind it and play it again. So he said, I am praying that you will experience persecution because out of persecution, the fellowship with God is sweet. It is sweet. And he basically said, until you've experienced something like that, there's a sense where you have no need of God. You do, but you don't recognize it. Now, I'm not, I'm not one of these people who want to run around upsetting everybody so we get persecuted. You know, I, it's not high on my list. But I do understand what the man says. In that moment, he has a vision of heaven. They didn't record, ouch, 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 as the rocks hit him. I see heaven opened and I see Jesus standing at the throne basically that's an interesting thing standing because I thought Jesus went and sat at the right hand of God but here Jesus is standing that's what he sees he says I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Not sitting, but standing. When there were kings with castles, the throne room was the courtroom. Judgment happened in the throne room. He sat on his throne, the king, and he passed judgment. What Stephen is seeing here is our mediator, our intercessor, standing before his father saying, I know this guy, father, I know him, he's one of ours. He's one of ours. He's coming home. He's coming to be with us. I believe that Jesus was mediating between the father and Stephen at that moment in time saying, he's coming home, Father. He's one of ours. He's followed me. He's, he's opened himself to me. He's, he's walked after me. He's, he's not had any other gods, any other idols in his life. He, he has tried to do what it is his best to follow me. And as those stones hit him, and as 
Saul, later to become Paul and later in Acts, become the focal point of mission. As Paul stood by and approved of his execution, he then, not only does he tell that he sees this moment, this revelation of heaven where he's going and Jesus is saviour, interceding or mediating for him before the Father, he then says basically the same words as Jesus himself. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, this is amazing. This is amazing. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I'd have been calling down the thunderbolts from heaven. Take them out. That's it, Lord. Do another one. Bang. You know, like that. He isn't. He is saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. You see, the goal of our walk through life is Christ-likeness. I'm reading John Stott, the radical disciple at the moment. And at 87 years of age, he gave an address at Keswick in which he unpacked what he felt was the goal of our Christian walk. It's Christ-likeness. He was emulating his saviour, Christ. Father, forgive them. Now, I'm not surprised that they get angry. I'm not surprised that Saul goes out and says, who does he think he flipping is? Father, forgive them. I'm going to make them suffer even more now. It, it made Paul or Saul at the time mad. And he goes out and he's going from house to house. He's dragging people out, putting them in prison. Probably some of them even ended up in the Colosseum. They could have ended up anywhere. Slaves. And yet, that persecution became the catalyst of jumping into worldwide mission. Worldwide mission. Something that in our mind is horrendous and horrific actually became something beautiful. Stephen can't have been that old, late 30s probably, We don't really know. Commentators say they think he was around 35 to 40. Lost his life. Fulfilling what God had given him to do. It seems so wrong. And yet, it produced amazing fruit. Wherever we go, If we commit our lives to becoming Christ-like, if we commit our lives to being faithful to what God has entrusted to us, has shown us, has revealed to us, I want to tell you, we will upset people. It's not we set out to do that. We just will. You must have met people from time to time. You walk in a room And you walk up to somebody and you just know they don't like you. They've never met you. They just don't like you. That's a weird feeling. But it happens. 
All right, it does happen. Mm, maybe it's they've heard stuff about you or whatever it happens to be before they've met you, but you just know that there's something not right there and they don't want to relate, they don't want to connect. But when we share Jesus, I want to tell you, we are going to upset people. The moment we say in this day and age that Jesus is the only way to heaven, we can upset people. There will come a day in our own country, I believe this, whether it's in my lifetime or not, there will come a day where to say, unless there is absolute overall revival, it will become a crime to say, Jesus is the only way to God. It will become a crime. It will be an arrestable offence. I genuinely believe that's what will happen unless God does something amazing and turns our country upside down because I watch the road we are going down and all these things, I could list a whole load, but all the things that are happening in this day and age and, and now acceptable practice and, you know, it's all seen as, yeah, well, we... It, you know, we've got to have our own truth. You know, we've got to be, we've got to have our own desire. I was, when I was listening to somebody this morning, they made this comment. They listened to someone when they, they, were, meant, they were talking about suffering, and I was just listening to this guy talk on it for a while. He, he talked about, if I can remember it, he talked how at one time, that the focus of everything was God. And so when suffering came, society in our nation had a better ability to understand suffering because they had God. And then there are some people who want to put nation in the place of God. And even for the person who is all about the nation, they even have a hope of having a little bit more understanding about suffering because the nation is outside of themselves. So when they suffer, they're doing it for the nation. They were doing it for God, for the nation. But when we reach that place, when we reach that place where the only person we are doing things for truthfully is ourselves, to live our own way, to have our own ability to decide our own destiny. When suffering comes, we've got a problem because we end up losing ourselves. Everything that gives us a reason for, for standing under suffering, I hope you can follow that, if, you, if, you put your, if you've got your hope towards God, then understanding suffering is in the light of God. If you've got a nation view, you, everything you suffer is for the nation, really. But when it's all about me, I'm the only person that is important. When you suffer, you've got nothing else. You've only got yourself. And it's being destroyed. You've, suffering becomes unbearable. And I believe we see that with the rates of suicide increasing within our nation. Males and females. And unfortunately, not just 
men and women, but children too, committing suicide at young ages because they don't have any hope. Stephen had a hope. So when he was dying, he knew why he was dying. He knew why he was suffering. His blood was shed. It watered the seed. And the seed has grown. And beauty came out of it. You and me are here today because of that first martyr. Otherwise it might have just stayed a localised affair in Jerusalem and eventually petered out. I want us to um, just take a moment. Can you come... Please. And you guys, it's fine. Stop. Sing a song together, and then um, I'm going to pray. Well, we're not, I mean, you can listen to Sally Ann sing it, you can join in if you know it. Um, As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect father i want to thank you that you didn't ever say that we wouldn't experience suffering but you did promise to be with us when we walk through the fire and on the flood you will be with us you've promised to walk with us through the whole of our lives day by day Now, Father, I want to ask you to help us as we respond to you and present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, which is our spiritual act of worship. Father, this week as we go about things, I pray that, Lord God, we will not allow what we are confronted with to dictate how we respond. Please, Lord, help us not be reactionary people, but be people who respond. Help us, Lord, to share the good news of your kingdom wherever we go. In word, in deed. Lord, however we do it, Lord, I pray we will share you with those we meet this week. Lord, we're not worried about their background, where they come from but we are worried where they will spend eternity. And so, Lord, give us soft hearts. Give us empathy, Lord, to understand. But, Lord, let us do so without compromise and without judgment. So, Father, we just... Ask, Lord, that you will go with us in Jesus' name. Amen.